Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today we have here with me in the Sirius XM studios a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, a Rock and Roll Legend, Alice Cooper. How you doing? Hello there. Hi. Uh, so you have a strong new album out called Paranormal. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Paranormal is uh, the thing that's been consistent. I think about the 27 albums we put out is I'm a hard rocker. I mean, it's a guitar rock. Yeah, and it's always going to be that. You know, in different forms, it kind of takes it takes on different forms every once in a while. But you know, the Detroit part in me is still guitar, <laughs> guitar hard rock, and then you know, whatever wherever it goes, it can go in a lot of directions. And before we get into deep into Alice Cooperland, we had breaking music news, which is there's a new Taylor Swift single. I'm sure you're very excited oh, about this. Oh, is it about me? No, it's I about, didn't break up can, with her. I, what I, if with your permission, I'd like to play you a little bit of it and oh, get your, your reaction. Yeah, okay. why not? Take that same song and put a big guitar on it, and it's a killer song. I don't like you. (laughs) Well, to be honest, I I had that thought because this is Taylor taking on a little bit of a darker persona. And that's dark. Well, (laughs) wow, how light is she? (laughs) That's exactly why I wanted your uh, judgment on this. (laughs) I can see now if she really wanted to make it creepy, though, she could have made that creepy. Yeah. You know, I mean, like threatening. Yeah, clearly, I think you could have helped her on this. I could have. I could have made that just a little bit on those dun, 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 to give it a little, you know, a dissonant note there. So it's so she sounds psychotic. Yeah. (laughs) Bob Ezrin could have helped too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Real easy. Real easy. We could have made her a psycho easy. She's doing fine. She's doing fine. You know, it's like I'm, I'm still a sucker for pop music. I like pop music. You know, uh, I think it's because melody is something that we our generation was the next generation after the Beatles. Yeah. So, so we were really addicted to melody. Uh, if you look at Oz, listen to Ozzy Osbourne or, or Steven Tyler or myself or anybody from that era, we, as, much, as hard as our rock is, it's got melody in it because we're, we're more influenced by the Beatles, I think. Um, and that's just something that will always stay with us. Bob Ezrin will not let you do a song that you can't sit down at the piano and play and sing. Yeah. You know, uh, he says, we just don't do riffs and yelling, <clears throat> riffs and yelling like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, some of the newer bands just kind of forget to write songs. Yeah. And some people think, like myself, think that that might be a problem with one of the problems with rock and roll is that rock bands aren't, are forgetting that they need to be competing with the Taylor Swifts and the Katy Perry's of the world as far as big choruses and, sure. you know, write a song. <laughs> you know, there was bands that, there. I've had bands to kind of, that's come to me and they got all the attitude in the world and they look great and they're young guys. And I listen to the songs and I go, I get it, you're angry. Okay, you're, you're 22 and you're angry, fine. Listen to Burt Bacharach. Listen to the Beatles. Listen to Brian uh, Wilson. Listen to those guys and learn how to write a song and then be angry right you know but, but be angry in a in a in a way that that will make me go oh yeah because if you're just angry and yelling at me i can get that from my kids you know but write me a song like that and and, and it'll stick yeah you know, it's it's hard to get anybody to listen though at that age to something with melody in it right you know it's so funny you can hear and see your influence um, for decades, you know, on so many different things. I think of Kiss, which you've talked about. I mean, when you first saw Kiss, <laughs> and you helped them out a little bit, yeah. but when, what was your reaction to the fact that they clearly at least built on your thing? I think the first thing I said was, all this band needs is a gimmick. 
<laughs> they, I knew these guys, and you know, I think the first advice I ever said to them was, um, "If you're going to do the makeup, do something not like me, because you're going to get compared to me anyways." So the idea of four comic book characters in the, the Kabuki makeup is smart, very smart, and the fact that they took their show in a different direction more pyro and things like that i totally got that alice was more the you know vaudevillian phantom of the opera you know there was some comedy involved but there was scary and everything like that and it was show busy even though it was hard rock um whereas they were much more power almost metal hmm. you know but pop metal you know and uh, you know we told her where to buy the makeup right i mean it wasn't like they were a surprise to us and right. and we're still friends we're still really good friends well you know all through these years. i think there's always the press always wanted to have a feud between me and bowie yeah you know whereas bowie and i were friends yeah i said you're the space guy i'm this guy you know <laughs> um iggy and myself because we're both Detroit guys, you know, doing at that time shock. It was kind of shocking what it, what what he was doing, and again, best friends. You know, I mean, we weren't competing. We pushed each other. Yeah, which was artistic. You know, we pushed each other, but never. I never really had any enemies in this business. Yeah, you know, the uh, the song elected such a great song. Um, it's a tribute to the Who. Makes sense, and I hear so much who uh, uh, in your early stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially yeah. the big. Yeah, you had to do the windmill if you did that, you know. <laughs> and so it was a tip of our hat to, you know, to Pete Townsend, who we really, really respected as probably the spirit of rock and roll. Even now, I just saw him last week, and he's still windmilling, and knuckles are bleeding, and it's great, you know. But but that song was not supposed to be political. Right, it was supposed to be a fun you know uh t take on politics as nixon was in at that point and i said who's the worst person that could run against nixon would be me <laughs> <laughs> uh, i have to say i don't know what you think I, you know you may disagree i would much rather have you as president of the united states than our current occupant i think uh, people could yeah i said tom hanks hmm. who him wouldn't too. vote for tom hanks him too sure yeah. i mean honestly what is the president the president is a figurehead hmm. he doesn't have that much power yeah. He's just a guy that talks for America. So, you know. Well, there's that little nuclear button. That's yeah, but like, he does, he's not allowed to touch that without 50 people saying he can touch it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the thing. Everybody thinks that he can do that. He really can't do that. Well, I fear that's not true, but we'll both Google that later and argue. So why but, wouldn't we elect Robert Redford? <laughs> yes, I mean, come on. Here's a guy you could look at as president and go, okay, that's our president right there. You know, that guy looks good. Look at that guy. Well, we did that with uh, Mr. Reagan, I suppose. But what I was going to say, and... and uh, Perhaps we can play the two songs. Let's play Elected. And then let's play a song from a few years later <laughs> called I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones. Um, and man, talking about a striking similarity, how did, did that strike you at the time? Were you aware well, of it? Well, Joey told me that they, it was the prototype for, I want to be sedated. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And I, t I got that first time I heard, I want to be sedated. I went, okay, I get it. You know? And then he, uh, you know, when I, when I talked to him, he says, so by the way, you know, 
<laughs> you know, Elected was John Lennon's favorite song. I, I read that, I guess, in your book. Yeah. yeah. He, he sp- and then told you Paul would have done it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I went, well, duh. Yeah. Paul does everything better. <laughs> you know, why not? Uh, well, I guess I want to, I want to songs are the province of the Beatles. I, I guess they, they were, uh, you know, they were good with that. Yes. Um, that, you know, they, 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 they're, I'm still sure that they're aliens. You know, <laughs> nobody does that many great records in a row. Nobody writes that many great songs in a row. You know, not 12, not 13, but like 300. That's, that's beyond Tiger Woods, you know, in golf. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you can't do that many hits in that many ways. And... Be able to make movies. I mean, think of all the bands you know. Yeah. How many guys in a band could actually do a movie and make you believe it? And, and, and actually you go, wow, these guys are really funny and good. What are the chances that they were the first ones and they were also those guys? And also they were that prolific. Yeah. Pretty hard to believe. And that, you know, kids today are still discovering them, still loving them. Absolutely. That said, the same is happening for you. I mean, even uh, Paris Jackson, Michael's daughter, um, and I, I wrote in my cover story about her earlier this year, she absolutely loves you. I think she met you. Uh, do you remember this? She yeah. was that big. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I knew Michael, you know, but uh, uh, it, 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 I don't know, maybe I'm a father figure, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But uh you know, there's something sexy about the character Alice Cooper. There's yes. something dark and sexy about him and uh, kind of worldly and you, know, you never quite trust him, but you kind of like him. You know, he's one of those guys. And uh, I think she's more in love with the character than than the person, you know. How conscious were you of, you can never know what you're, you know, proceeding, what's going to come of what you're doing, but you were a break with peace and love in a way you know you were doing something that you know the rock critics might call proto-punk sometimes in the early days and i mean and how aware were you of of being that break of being that thing to a certain extent you had to have been because of the hostility that was met that people met you but it's because we brought hostility you know <laughs> i mean we, we we were not in the least bit interested in peace and love yeah. I mean, we were, uh, I'm from Detroit, you know, and the band from Ohio, we were all Midwest guys that met in Phoenix, went to school together and, and grew out of that. But I never was once a hippie ever, you mm. know, I mean, uh, I lived in that era and, you know, the whole thing like that, but we were never into that. We were much more into the whole, uh, let's get rich, let's be sexy, let's be rock stars let's strut it on stage you know i mean it was the whole idea of glam the glamorous life of being a rock star whereas you were other people were going well we don't care about the money we just want to write our songs and you know isn't it great that the sun came up today and we're going yeah right <laughs> you know yeah i want to buy a ferrari <laughs> yeah. and the peace and love thing i was so unrealistic i got it mm. and and it was nice but it was very unrealistic at the time because you had vietnam going on you had the race problem in the South going on. Every possible violent thing was going on. And we were just maybe a little more realistic about it. Frank Zappa, who obviously uh, signed you to your first deal, shared some of that cynicism, didn't he? I think so. You know, Frank was never a musical influence, but he was, I think we, we had the same sense of humor. And yeah. when I met him, it, he was like my big brother. You know, I mean, I... I in fact, I brought in one time, I, I was reading a, one of those men's magazines and it said, Weasels Rip My Flesh on the cover. And I brought it into him. I said, this would be an album cover for you oh, or wow. a title. And he goes, oh yeah, and he put it away. And next thing I know, there's an album called Weasels Rip My Flesh. Uh, so the sense of humor was very, you know, uh, copacetic with us. And uh, 
the best compliment I ever got from him was he listened to us, the Pretties for You album, and he goes, I don't get it. <laughs> and I went, well, that's good, isn't it? And he goes, yeah. He's the fact that I don't get it is is good. Right. If you freaked Frank Zappa out in the late 60s, then you, you probably were doing something correct. Well, what freaked him out was he says, you've got six songs here that are two minutes long with 35 changes in them. <laughs> I, he's like the opposite of prog rock. <laughs> it was taking prog rock and going like <laughs> stuffing it into a two minute package. And he says, and you play it live. Yeah. And he says, where are you from? I said, Phoenix. And he goes, okay, now I really don't get it. Right. That's a cowboy town. Right. What, what are you guys, you know? And the funny thing was, we were we drank beer. We weren't on any drugs at all, you know? You obviously reunited with uh, the guys from the original Alice Cooper group uh, for a few songs on this new album. Yeah. Uh, and it's so fun to hear them. Well, and, we never broke up with any bad right, blood. Right, There was no bad blood. And we, when we broke up, it was more a, a separation than a divorce. You know, I mean, the guys... We, just, we had just done five or six albums in a row without taking a break and touring between the albums. In those days, you did two albums a year. You did Love It to Death and Killer, and, and then you did Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies, and then promoted it and toured with it and never stopped. And I think at the end of Billion Dollar Babies, which was one of those tours that broke every record possible, we were exhausted and... I still had that thing. We got to keep going. And I think it was just finally an exhaustion thing. You know? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you got to play with them at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I just really love seeing that. Well, that Neil, was... Neil Dennis and Mike are, play exactly like they played in the 70s. Yeah. When we got together, it didn't feel awkward at all getting back on stage with these guys and playing. I knew exactly what Dennis was going to play. I knew what Neil was going to play. And it was just just like a day had gone by, not 20 years. So when we got into the studio with this album, you know, there was a song called Genuine American Girl. Yeah. And it was, I want to find a genuine American girl. And, and I said, well, would we have said that in 74? We would have said, I want to be a right. genuine there American girl yeah. just to irritate the parents. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, and it would be funny. And at the same time, it'd be pointed the song would be says so let's do it that way and they're great man the guys played great live in the studio and let's hear uh, that song for a minute Yeah, I mean, Dennis wrote uh, a really entertaining book. I don't know if you read it. It's great. It is really great. It's great. There's a few things. He disagrees with you on some some factual points. Yeah. He also, he says something interesting, which is he argues, and he obviously has a different point of view of the way the character works and the way the mystique works. Yeah. He argues that you, quote unquote, lost the mystery once you dropped the mask more and became a, a, a more normal celebrity. And I think he said when you went on Hollywood Squares for him, that was the end of the mystery or whatever. So how do you, how do you respond to that kind of thought? I think you, you've, I painted myself into a corner yeah. with the Alice character. And what happens is uh, any anybody like a Marilyn Manson or anybody that gets so specific into one character can't go anywhere with it. After they paint themselves into the corner, we we very much realize that Shep and I, and realize that we have to let more people in, and we have to show that Alice is something more than just this horror character. He can be this too. He can act. He can 
He can be funny on the Johnny Carson show. He can do the Hollywood Squares next to Paul Lynn and be funny. Let's give him another side. And yeah. when we get on stage, Alice all the way. Never give him, I mean, tear, him, tear their throats out as Alice. But also have another side to it. If I would have stayed just that Alice, I would have been painted so much into a corner that I would have been gone by now. I had to open up and start doing things that were other than Alice. But keeping in mind that when I do play Alice, it's vicious. I mean, it's 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 Alice Cooper, and I I still treat it like that. Yeah, fair enough. And, and I think that Dennis made one more point that I, you know, Dennis, first of all, Dennis and I <laughs> ran cross country and track together. Yeah, you I go mean, back to before Beatles. Yeah. yeah. So we are, we are, we will be lifelong friends forever. It doesn't matter what he says, what I say. We'll sit and laugh all day about it, you know. And um, <laughs> he said he thought it was about the money. It had nothing to do with the money honestly had nothing to do with the money i wasn't running away with the money at all i was running away from the fact that we had finally come to a brick wall in creativity and we just couldn't get past it yeah you made an album that none of you in the end were that happy with first of all they didn't want to work with bob ezrin and i went are you crazy what do you you know and we made a good album i mean muscle of love was a good album but it wasn't alice cooper It, it felt like a version of alice cooper but not after coming off two number one albums, you kind of expect the next one to be even more progressive and it went all over the place. It is funny though, you know, there's always the album, especially albums that, you know, are, are the linchpin for a breakup and everyone says, oh, it didn't come out right. And then sometimes you listen to them, especially after a long time, you go back and listen and you go, wait a second, I, I love this album. The, you know? album, the <laughs> songs were great. Right. Individually. Right. I was so used to our songs fitting together. Right. And all of a sudden they didn't. Yeah. What was the glue was Bob Ezrin. Yeah. Bob was the glue that that put all that together. Now, we did I mean the producer was great. He did a great job on that album and I still love that album. But it was a little tired. It was a little bit tired and you could feel it in the in the tracks. I could feel it. And now they wanted to then all go in different directions in this and I had this idea for Welcome to My Nightmare which was going to be even more work than Billion Dollar Babies. And I think that's what might have been the, you know, the broke the camel's back. You know, <laughs> I, th- I think it's in your book that you say there was a little bit of grumbling from the band about, oh, why do you have the higher profile? Why are you doing all the interviews? And I think at some point you're like, fine, you get up before noon and do the interviews. And at that point they were like, no, nah, we're, we're good. Right? Well, I was getting up at six in the morning to right. do the interviews and, you know, uh, and not realizing that I was alcoholic. And not realizing mm. that the alcohol was now becoming increasingly more important to me. It wasn't because I liked to drink with the band anymore. It was because it was medicine now. And it was getting increasingly more and more important to me. But it was that workload that was that was pushing that, pushing it, pushing it. And uh, and yeah, then when I became a full-blown alcoholic after, after Welcome to My Nightmare, I mean, I should have just collapsed and gone to a hospital and... Um, it you know nearly killed me that uh, that that tour did that was a more hard tour to do than billion dollar babies mm. well it was so elaborate with dancers and it was everything yeah, it, it yeah. was just the rehearsal for it was two months you know of just every day all day just to make it look the way it looked but it was worth it i mean it was all worth it but in the middle of that tour i mean we did 64 cities in 72 days wow and that was just one little piece of the tour that mm. just never ended and i was you know, fortifying it with drinking, drinking, drinking. Pretty soon, 
I mean, I just collapsed at the end of it. I was gone. Is there any way, is there any universe that you would have been able to sort of keep the band together, do some solo stuff, do some band stuff, and, and, and carry it on? Or was that just kind of the artistic end of the band for well, that time? Well, the nightmare thing took me far away from the band because yeah. it was a full, <clears throat> you know, you really had to commit yourself to that project. It was going to be, well, Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter in the band. And, and you know, I had working with all new people, which I'd never done before. I've never worked with all new people. I've only known my little family of Dennis, Neil, Mike, and Glenn. Yeah. You know, so it was all new to me. And it took all my time, took all my energy. Uh, and after that, then the Hell album and that's, and it just went on and on. But we never, ever lost touch. Dennis, if, I, if we were going to play in Connecticut, I had always called Dennis and Neil and say, hey, you want to come up and play on da-da-da? Sure. We never really had any bad words with each other. There was never any yeah. lawsuits. There was never anything like that. You know, when Glenn died, all of us were like, oh, man. Yeah. You know, I mean, because Glenn was our Sid Barrett. You know, he was our insanity. Um, but, but Neil, I always respected Neil as one of the great show drummers of all time. Dennis, one of the most imitated bass players. Uh, Mike Bruce wrote some of the catchiest riffs ever. And I always respected him and always wanted to work with him. So we always stayed in touch. I'd sing on something for Blue Coop for Dennis. Right. If Neil needed something, I'd be on that for them. If I'd say, hey, Neil, you want to play on this? We always stayed kind of like arm's length. This is the first time we could, after the, the, the Hall of Fame thing, that was the first time we actually got together and actually got on stage and played with Steve Hunter playing lead. And it was, it was great. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I've seen a lot of those Hall of Fame reunions. Some are great, some are not so great. I, that was one of the absolute best. It really oh, felt like seeing you guys in the 70s. Yeah, and, and because none of the guys, they all play the same way and I still sing the same way. We, we didn't really go in any direction. It's so funny because we did a show in Nashville recently where with my touring band, it's unbelievable. They're the best touring band out there. Mm. And when the curtain goes down, they cut my head off. The curtain goes down. The curtain normally goes up, and we come back out and do the encore. But when the curtain goes up, it's the original band. Wow. And we did 18, you know, uh, Billion Dollar Babies, all the, all the hits, and School's Out, everybody came out. Oh, and man. when I sing with the original band, it's a different thing. Everybody says, your voice got rougher. The band was darker. It was heavier. And I listened, I said, yeah, I said, when I sing with them, I sing differently. Yeah, that's what I experienced. I felt like it was time travel. It was crazy. Yeah. What was it like the first few days, the first couple of weeks when you went in without them to do Welcome to My Nightmare and you're just sort of like getting used to these new guys, getting all you had was Ezra and as far as a familiar anchor? Well, you know, I, first of all, you got a band that was unbelievable. Whitey Glenn on drums, Rakesh John on bass. Hunter and Wagner were like Bloomfield and Bishop. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were two who, of the... Who played on the rock and roll animal oh, Lou Reed yeah. album, yeah. And, you, you know, I mean, who was the better guitar player? Who knows? They were both, you know, as Steven Tyler calls them the dynamic duo. We used to say they were the best two guitar players in America. Mm. So I had both of them in my band. You know what that feels like to be up there and hear that? Yeah. I mean, I was just like, I was in heaven. Because I've always loved the gunslingers. I've always loved the great guitar players, you know. And I had two of them. It was a whole new experience. Yeah. I didn't feel out of place, but I realized that most lead singers that leave their bands and go out on their own get <laughs> killed. Yeah. Even Jagger. Yeah. You know, going out with his solo albums didn't exactly set the world on fire. Everyone wanted to see him with the Rolling Stones, you know. 
So this was going to be something new. In order to package that, I had to come up with something that was so different and so unique that it was going to, they were going to, they were going to forget about that. That that wasn't the original band. Part of it, of course, was that you were Alice Cooper, that you had taken that on. And in the very early days, that wasn't quite the case. You kind of no. resisted it. Yeah, I did. I, I I was the lead singer for Alice Cooper. Right. But everybody called me Alice. Right. They said, oh, there's Alice. And there's Alice. Finally, I went, okay, I'm Alice. And I changed <laughs> my name to Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know. And at the time, it wasn't for any other reason of just convenience for me. I was tired of being both people. So we spoke a little bit about Bob Ezrin, the legendary producer who worked with many times over the years. He he is a taskmaster. He can be a sort of co-auteur with the people he's producing. And especially for when he first worked with you guys, he kind of broke you down and built you up again. What, yes. what was that like? You know, it was uh, the odd thing. The most odd thing about it was the fact that we listened to him. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> we never listened to Frank Zappa. We never listened to anybody. You know, and Bob Ezrin comes in and goes, why is it that when you hear a Doors album, you know it's the Doors? Why is it when you hear the Rolling Stones, you know it's the Stones? He says, they have a signature mm. in their sound, which is what you don't have. You have the image, you have the show, you have no signature. You could be the strawberry alarm clock <laughs> as far as anybody hears on the radio. So this next record, Love It to Death, is going to have your signature all over it and it's gonna be, it could only be you. And I said, well, if we can get that, he was our George Martin, basically. Right. He, right. he he did what George Martin did to the Beatles. Took all these great parts, all these great sections, and put it into three-minute things that could be played on the radio. And then on, and then let us go on the on the Dwight Fries and the Hale, you know the the songs that were just a little bit more psycho. You know, but even even eighteen was a mess before he got to it, right? It had a lot of different parts. Oh, a lot of yeah, it, yeah. We, yeah. We wanted to be the American Yardbirds, you yeah. know, and that was our goal was to be somewhere between the Who and the Yardbirds, mm. uh, only the American version. Whereas Bob was going, he kept saying, "Dumb it down," and we'd go and we'd play, and the solo would go on. No, dumb it down. And we're going, it can't get any dumber than this. And he goes, yes, it can. <laughs> dumb, 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 dumb. He says, it's got to be so dumb that you can't miss it. And, you know, when you have, to, you have to remember when that record came out, it came out and you were in competition with the Carpenters, Simon and Garfunkel, the Supremes, Sinatra, all the top 40 was a mishmash of hit records. How is 18 going to fit in that? It did because it was so unique in what it was. And it was so simple to understand. I'm 18 and I like it. <laughs> it wasn't I'm 18 and I'm depressed. It was he complains through the whole song. And then at the end he goes, I'm 18 and I love it. Yeah. I love being 18. That was the hook to that song. There's a little bit of that muddy waters, like I'm a man, you know, sure. the, the, that same pride, that blues pride. That you know? was, and, yeah. and, and, and all he had to do was just keep eliminating things before we got that. You know, I, um, it's, it's, it's something that bands don't think about. Bands always want to play through it and show off what they can do. Whereas this was a minimalist idea. Make it as minimal as possible. And it was truly punk. Yeah. I mean, it sure. was as punk as you could get. And it, but it fit in. 
You mentioned the Yardbirds. There's a great anecdote where you you guys opened for the Yardbirds as a very young band, as a high school band. (laughs) And this is amazing because you had basically, you had learned all their songs. And in your opening set, you played like all All the Yardbirds songs. songs. And how come they weren't furious at you? No, they loved it. (laughs) They loved it. I mean, we might, we did, we did probably... 20 songs. Yeah. And I would say 12 of them were Yardbird songs. And then we did some them, we did some kinks and this and this. But you're talking about a young Jeff Beck, Keith Ralph, all those guys there. We could see them. Yeah. At the back of the club. And they were going, because we were pretty Thumbs good Yardbirds up, yeah. band. I mean, right, we could right. play that stuff, you know. And then they got up on stage and blew us off the stage because they were the Yardbirds. And Jeff Beck was not just Jeff Beck. He was show off Jeff Beck. If you can imagine him doing what he wants to do and then showing off. I mean, he did some stuff on the guitar that was just like jaw dropping yeah. that night where, where we just kind of looked at each other and went, wow, have we got a long way to go. <laughs> so in Dennis's book, and by the way, there's practically no interview where you don't have to address the chicken incident. I want to address it in a slightly different way. I want to bring up Dennis's version, which is there's at least three versions <laughs> there's the original version which is uh just someone random threw a chicken up on stage in your book you say that you've since learned that shep planted the chicken on stage in dennis's book this is, he says that actually you guys had this chicken it was like a pet on stage and that you you guys made up the story about it being thrown on stage because you didn't want animal rights people to get mad at you so yeah. which which is the uh, real story <laughs> first of all all of us were on a different drug at the time so that explains it all yeah. <laughs> so everybody has a different memory of it if we brought the chicken i had no idea that we did nobody told me and you would think that they would tell me about a chicken on the stage (laughs) at the end of the show we would open up white feathers and co2 cartridge and the whole stadium looked like a snow like like a blizzard and in the middle of that i looked down and there's a chicken and i honestly being from detroit i'd never been on a farm in my life it had wings, it had feathers, it should fly. And I threw it in the audience. I figured somebody's going to take the chicken you know, home. And, oh, wow, let's do this chicken. The audience tore it to pieces. And what no one ever addresses is forget about what it says about you. What is the, I think that says something about the peace and love. The uh, Toronto Peace crowd. Festival. Yeah. That's, <laughs> no, that, that's, even better than that. That was the first Altamont, really. The but, first yeah. six rows were all in wheelchairs. They um, were the ones that killed the chicken. that makes it even more bizarre so the next day of course alice cooper kills chicken and drinks blood and like this you know and frank zappa calls up and he says did you kill a chicken on stage and i went no and he said well don't tell anybody they love it (laughs) he says it's got press all over the world you're the geek of all time you killed the chicken and i went wow they really want alice to kill this chicken you know and you said that the chicken story gets to the point where you're like the chicken was six feet tall the chicken was attacking the audience it yeah. just yeah i saved the audience from the chicken it's like the, it's like the chicken on family guy right that <laughs> the one of your many recent projects is was the hollywood vampires um with with johnny depp and all sorts of people and joe perry yeah. and joe perry you know As a pretty successfully sober guy in your latter years, those guys weren't necessarily successfully sober at the time or even trying to be. How did you deal with that? I I thought they were. 
Right. Uh, it, during the sessions, we all sat there and he said, here we are singing about our friends that are drunk and dead. That was the whole idea. It was songs from all our d- dead drunk friends. I said, and everybody in this room is sober. I thought. Ouch. <laughs> I really did. I mean, I'm that naive. I know that, that Johnny was drinking uh, near beer. And smoking fake cigarettes. I said, you're going to have a fake heart attack. You know, that's a good one. And Joe was supposedly, you know, he says, no, I'm straight. Everything like that. And so the album flew by. We did the album in two weeks. I mean, we just flew by. Ezra producing, you know, we got all that done. I realized how to, what a good guitar player Johnny was. Johnny, Johnny was giving Joe lessons. Huh. Which shocks people. But Johnny can play all this. Django Reinhardt, gypsy jazz stuff. And Joe's going, what is that? Yeah. You know, and so he's in there, it goes like this. And, and Johnny's a serious guitar player. I mean, he gets out there and plays with everybody. Hmm. Uh, and zero ego. That was the thing that shocked me the most. You get that many alpha males in one room and nobody's trying to take over. Yeah. I love that. Those, those are nice guys. I've hung out with those guys. They're really the nicest know. guys in the world. Joe and I could be the best of friends. Johnny and I could be best of friends. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you get uh, Duff. I mean, Duff was just cooler than could be, you know. And, and I mean, it was just like, phew, just connected like that. I think everybody had so much respect for each other that nobody would ever jump up and say, oh, this is how we're doing it. Yeah. You know. So you and Duff were holding down the sobriety. Um, it, so how did it fall out that, I mean, that there were some problems on the tour. And I mean, how, how, did, you, how, did, how did all that fall out for you and how did you deal with that? Well, when we left, we all we had just sold out every gig that we did. You know, we went to we uh, went to Transylvania actually with <laughs> Tim Burton. Had dinner at Castle Dracula with Tim Burton. Yeah, <laughs> wow. And at the end, you know, we all went. Oh, tour's over. Darn it. Well, let's do it again next year. We already got gigs booked in March. So Johnny's doing like five movies this year to get to free up the beginning of the year. Um, Joe's finishing up Aerosmith. I'm finishing up this tour December 6th. Fully planning to go out again. That's great. Yeah. So, you know, when you listen to Paranormal, you can tell that this is an album done with, with love and attention and with as much sort of seriousness as anything you've done in your career. Some people, uh, especially who've been in the business for a while, say you know there's practically no point in making albums you're never going to make your your money back anymore and it's like not you might as well just tour i've heard that from really big rock stars but you're obviously not thinking that way i i know that there are over 40 50 years of the business there's a fan base out there of alice cooper fans that would love to hear new music could care less at how many records it sells if just the fans go out and get it and go wow new records uh, new songs oh how cool is this song you know when you're doing a song you go i can't wait to get this one on stage you know things like that i i keep it going like it's the 70s i don't care what's happening out there i don't care if the charts are this or the charts are that i forgot about the charts way back you know i knew that my records were going to sell just a just a, a good amount not thinking of that as a money maker you make all your money on touring you make all your money in merchandise and things like that. Records, you don't make money on anymore. The golden days, you did. You know, Billion Dollar Babies and School's Out and all. We made a lot of money on those and trash. They, they did amazing amounts of money. Still making money on it. You still get paid, mm. you know, on that. Um, I feel sorry for young bands now. Yeah. They can't see. I mean, I, my son's got a great band. I mean, a, a band that would have been signed in the 70s. Uh, they're called Co-op. 
and oh, yeah? they are killer. They're like Lincoln Park with a bad attitude, huh. you know. <laughs> but in the seventies, they would have been signed and had been on tour. I said, "You, I feel sorry for you guys. There's no outlet for you right now. There's nobody supporting you. There's nobody. The record companies we used to support us, you know. I mean, they didn't want two albums. They wanted twenty albums. You know, so it, but a different era. Hopefully, there's a retro thing that will happen. I can't imagine teenagers not looking at the 80s and going, let's do that again. Yeah. Spandex and hair and glam bands and, you know, party all the time. I I can't imagine 16-year-olds not looking at that and saying, that's what I want to do. I mean, every, all bands seem so introverted now. Yeah. Everybody, nobody wants, nobody has any swagger. Mm. Nobody goes up there wanting to rock. Everybody goes there going... Oh, the environment is bad. Hip hop and pop have the swagger. They yeah. took the swagger from yeah. all the yeah. girls. Yeah, all the girls. I just saw Lady Gaga yeah. killed it. I mean, she was as good as anything I've ever seen. Rihanna, you know, all the girls have got huge shows. Where are the guys? Yeah, there's nobody. No, no guys out there doing any shows anywhere near that. We've got Ed Sheeran up there with just an acoustic guitar for for an hour. <laughs> to go see that there's swagger <laughs> where are the Mick Jaggers where are the new Mick Jaggers the Struts good band yeah not bad the Stripes good band from Ireland great yeah. band I mean that band is killer uh, there are some bands out there that still have the attitude of let's make this thing rock let's 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 show some butt you know and, and rock <laughs> this place and, and I think there will be a resurgence of that Given your relationship with Ezrin and your relationship with Pink Floyd, and people don't know how much you guys hung out with Pink Floyd. Yeah. They, Pink Floyd once dosed you guys with uh, <laughs> with like pot. Pink Floyd made you guys pot cookies and dosed you guys with them? We, our first time, we finally got a gig at the Whiskey A Go-Go. <laughs> finally. I mean, every band in America was in LA trying to get into the Whiskey A Go-Go because the Doors were the, the you know, the, the house band there. Finally, we get up there and it says Alice Cooper and, and I said, Who's Led Zeppelin? <laughs> they walked into rehearsal and then we saw Jimmy Page and went, that guy was with the Yardbirds. So immediately they were holy to us. You know, we played with them that night. They they opened for us, we opened for them. Because neither one had any. Then the very next night we played the Cheetah Club with some guy named Pink Floyd. <laughs> as far as we were concerned. They ran out of money and moved in with us in our house in Venice. Including Sid Barrett. Sid Barrett, who... I don't know how anybody got that high that early in their life, mm. <laughs> but he was, he would sit and look at a box of cornflakes the way I would watch Looney Tunes on television, you know, yeah. and I don't know what was going on in that box of cornflakes, but he was enjoying it. <sighs> yeah. I don't think it was just being high, unfortunately, but yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was definitely uh, something going on there more than drugs. And I think Roger Waters went to uh, open your refrigerator and then found out you guys you guys had nothing but carrots in there. <laughs> well, food was a big deal, but beer was more important. Right. You know, we 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 proved that a band could live on beer. So it, did, it's a food source. How did you feel about another brick in the wall having this sort of child voice thing that 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 you would use before in school? Well, though? Bob Ezrin. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. we we totally got it, and it, it might have been the same kids. <laughs> I don't know if it was the same kids, but even in our show now, the end of school's out. You know, it, it's dun da dun dun da dun dun da dun 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 We don't need no right. education. Right, you've played with that, yeah. It it fits like a glove right in there. The two songs do. And we do that every night now and the audience goes crazy when we do that, you know. Have you ever discussed it with Bob? Uh no. 
Yeah. You know, Bob just says, well, I mean, they were both about, you know, right. teenagers and, and the problems and every and the kids. And I said, hey, I get it. Worked once, why not work again? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about Glenn Campbell, who passed away recently. Yeah. Uh, people don't know that you guys were, were buddies. Oh, man, we were, we were very close, uh, only because we both lived in Phoenix. Our wives were really good friends. Our kids grew up together. We went to high school and wow. elementary school and high school together. And Glenn and I played golf twice a week. Now, when I saw Glenn, I had Glenn come up on stage one night and play guitar with Ted Nugent and a couple of other people. At a, we had a big, I have a Christmas show called The Christmas Pudding Yeah, that, that uh, for Solid Rock Foundation. And he blew everybody off stage. We really? were doing like a Chicago uh, Paul Butterfield oh, blues thing. Oh, so he thing. was just jamming on guitar. And yeah. He, can, and he was a monster. Plugs it in. And he was Mike Bloomfield. Yeah. I mean, uh, and everybody just went, what the hell is that? <laughs> Who knew that he could play like that? Eddie Van Halen one time asked me if I could get him a guitar lesson. From Glenn Campbell, with yeah. Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Because Glenn was with the wrecking crew. I mean, this guy yeah. could play anything. Any style, yeah. Any style. He could hang with the Sex Pistols or with Sinatra. That's that's where that's his range. And he had his own bottles with substances. Was that something you guys talked about, or was it just an unspoken? Oh no, we talked about the yeah. coke thing. Yeah, there, I mean, he 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 was you know he had his run with coke back in the, there. There was a blizzard in L.A. at a certain period where everybody did coke. I mean, everybody. Right. And he was right there. Yeah. You know, and maybe did more than anybody or whatever. Him and Tanya. And from what I understand, I can't speak for Tanya, but I know Glenn certainly did. And. uh you know, I mean, he was as rock as anybody out there. Yeah. Of course, it wasn't just him. It was every lawyer. Every, <laughs> when I saw Vinyl, right. you know, the TV the show, show yeah. I, I, the thing that struck me was this. We were in the bands that wrote the songs, that recorded the songs, and handed them to the record company, and then we went on tour. We had no idea how any record got played on the radio. Right. No, There was no knowledge of anybody paying somebody in cocaine or doing this and this. All we knew was we made the record and, oh, it's on the radio. But, I mean, there was never any knowledge of how that record got on the radio. At, at least in our camp, it wasn't. I, I just figured, well, it was a good enough record to get played. When I saw vinyl, I was going, oh, there's like a whole other world going on here. And they're much more, you know. They're partying mo much more than the rock stars are. <laughs> right. We're out there trying to do shows. Because you guys actually had to make art. They just had to sell the They had know, to yeah. sell the thing. And, and, and what was the the commodity? It was cocaine. Yeah. I mean, you know. And in the minute we have left, those, what did you take away from Glenn's sort of final tour and the way he, he went out and fought against, you know, the, the dying of the light? And, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. It was a long, slow death and you know i knew there was something wrong when he would tell me the same joke four times yeah and i could see him slipping but you put a guitar in his hand and the guy was a wizard yeah. he could just play any sing anything and then he would forget you know how to go in the other room yeah you know what i mean it, it's it's got to be a horrible long slow processional death that you know that you're almost happy when it happens you know yeah. because a guy like that that's that live you know is it's really sad to see him slip away and just really quick, I mean, how how would how do you want to be remembered? I you know I always loved the idea of being the the Busby Berkeley of rock and roll, mm. or being the Barnum and Bailey, or whatever that they want to call me. I I wanted the lyrics to come to life. If you say "Welcome to my nightmare," give them the nightmare. Let the lyrics write the show, and bring it to the audience. Give them visuals. Make them make make rock and roll become alive. Yeah. Well, that says it all. 
Alice Cooper, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. This has been Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. We'll be back next week on Sirius XM 106 volume. In the meantime, download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe to us as a podcast as well. And, you know, if you can, leave us a nice review on iTunes. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.